Sirs, moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redco History Podcast, the place for people who love British military history and listening to damn good stories. Today's a bit special. I'm joined by the one and only Ian Knight, Mr. Zulu War. I'm looking at my bookshelf now. It is packed with Ian Knight books. Of course, we've got Zulu Rising, The Anatomy of the Zulu Army, Rourke's Drift by Those Who Were There, the National Army Museum book of the Zulu War, British fortifications in Zululand 1879, and many, many more. It's an absolute privilege to have him on the show, and he's here to talk about his new book, Warriors in Scarlet, The Life and Times of the Last Redcoats. In today's interview, he's going to be explaining how the British Army changed from the end of the Napoleonic Wars through to the, the latter end of the Redcoat era. He's going to be explaining why the Maori Wars and the Frontier Wars in South Africa were so important. We're going to be looking at how recruitment changed and how the officer class became more professional. Or did they? We're going to find out. Stay with us. Before we begin, though, guys, I just want to take a quick moment to ask you to sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you do so, you get a free ebook all about the Battle of Isandwana. Afterwards, you'll also be getting a sort of bi-weekly or monthly email from me with useful links, book recommendations, and also details of upcoming videos and podcasts. Okay, guys, without further ado, let's get on. So, Ian, I think most of my viewers and listeners will probably have come across your work at some point. But can you just give us a brief potted history of who you are and what your research specialisations are? Yeah, uh, my name's Ian Knight and I write uh, history books about the British Empire. Um, my particular sort of fascination has always been Southern Africa and the history of the Zulu Kingdom. Uh, and in particular, the conflict with the British in 1879. Uh, other aspects of South African in, uh, history do interest me, but the Anglo-Zulu War has really been my thing. Um, but I've kind of branched out a little bit into one or two other Victorian campaigns. Uh, obviously, you, you acquire a certain sort of level of knowledge about the Victorian army, and you sometimes find yourself wondering, well, how did that work in that war rather than my usual war? Uh, and that's kind of what I've done with the new book, really. Um, Steps sideways into a slightly different um, period. So was it just an, a natural extension then of your interest in the Anglo-Zulu War? Or was there sort of specific themes that you really wanted to jump into with Warriors in Scarlet? Uh, yeah, it, to some extent, it was a natural extension. Um, I should be honest and say there was a bit of publisher intervention at this point also saying, oh, can you write about anything except Zulus? Um, and I thought, well, actually, I suppose, yes, I can, because the other side of the story has been the, the Victorian experience of those wars. Uh, and I have touched on that in one or two books in the past. Uh, and I thought, yeah, OK, let's see if we can step sideways uh, and look at that. Uh, and there's a bit of a, and I should acknowledge the, the influence. There's a, a bit of a tribute to the late Professor Richard Holmes uh, in that it's kind of his style of book. It's a mix of social history and military history with a lot of eyewitness experience. Uh, and of course, he didn't look at this period. So in a way, it seemed there was a bit of a you know shoe in for me to, to step into that vacant space uh, and have a look at it here. Um, it's slightly accidental the way the time period has 
uh, worked out. Uh, originally, we approached it, I was going to do the whole Victorian period. So it was going to look, be a look at the, the Victorian soldier from 1837 through till the death of Queen Victoria uh, at the end of the 19th century. But actually, it was just too big. Um, there was too much of it to, to fit into. I think this book is, what, 500 pages. Uh, and both I and the publisher said, look, nobody wants a thousand page book. Um, so I it was do. a case of, yeah, <laughs> I did. well, you know, there's always the possibility of volume two, buy this one, and then, you know, they may be interested in volume two. Um, so I, it then kind of fell to a natural cutoff point looking at, at the last of the Redcoats, which is the sort of um, the subtext of the book, really, uh, the life and times of the last Redcoats. Uh, and you get that point in the 1850s, 1860s, when the British army is moving away from redcoats in action. Uh, and it's changing in a number of other ways as well. Um, and so that seemed to be a, a kind of interesting cutoff point for, for this particular project. And going back to the beginning of the book, you open with a story that I'd never heard about, which was this sort of, I don't want to call it a battle, but this incident at Bossenden Wood in 1838. What, what made you decide to start there? What, what is the story? Just a brief overview. And what made you decide to start there? Yeah, it's a fascinating little story. And, and the reason that I put it in there was that I lived in, it, it takes place in a wood outside Canterbury in Kent. Uh, and I lived in Canterbury for a while. Uh, and I came across the story then. Um, we're talking sort of 30 years ago, but I went out and had a look at Bosendon Wood where it happened. And I got quite intrigued by the, the story in itself, which is a, a very bizarre uh, incident um, in which uh, uh, an imposter, a chap who styles himself Sir William Courtney, um, actually he wasn't, he was a Cornishman by the name of John Tom, um, uh, who uh, presented himself with a very flamboyant personality in Canterbury in the 1830s, stood for Parliament, didn't get elected, uh, actually got convicted of perjury um, in a case involving some smugglers, was subsequently sent into a mental institution uh, because it was becoming clear that that a lot of his persona was delusional, uh, was released from the mental institution and went to live in the villages outside Canterbury, where he took on another guise um, uh, in which he claimed to be the Messiah, uh, sent down from heaven to, to uh, free the rural poor from their oppression. Uh, and he marched about the countryside preaching apocalyptic surgeons uh, and uh, surgeons, uh, apocalyptic sermons um, and very much uh, put the wind up the local landowners who thought that this was you know, going to lead to riot and mayhem, which it sort of did. He got a, a band of dedicated followers, um, marched around, apparently threatening to set fire to bean stacks, at which point the army was called in and the riot act was read. Uh, and there was this incident, as you say, in, in Bosendon Wood. Um, it's generally known as the Battle of Bosendon Wood, but it was a very small affair. There were only sort of 30 or 40 rebels involved uh, and a, a dozen of them or so are, are killed or injured. Uh, but the troops were unleashed. Um, his he exhorted his followers to attack the redcoats uh, and basically he was shot down uh, and it just struck me as a very bizarre unusual interesting story um so much were people convinced that he might have been the messiah uh, that after he was killed the army mounted a guard on his body for three nights in case he rose up from the dead and I just thought wow this is a fantastic story that I want to tell nobody's uh, there there have been 
previous looks at it, but not for a long time. Nobody's been telling this story for 60 or 70 years. Uh, and what struck me as being relevant in terms of warriors in Scarlet um, is that this is in the year that Queen Victoria becomes queen. Uh, and it, it struck me as being a way to look at social divisions on the eve of Queen Victoria's reign, what was going on in Victorian Britain at this time. Uh, there's a lot of other social upheaval, chartists, um, all sorts of different issues that, that, um, that the rural poor had recently been smashing up threshing machines. It was a big threat to their, their livelihoods. Uh, so there's a lot going on in Victorian Britain, and this was a way of looking at it. Uh, and the crossover was that here were British troops firing on British citizens, and those British citizens were very much actually the sort of people who were recruited into the army. Um, the army in 1837 liked to uh, recruit rural workers. They were sort of strong and fit. Um, somebody says, well, they took authority rather more easily than sort of slum dwellers from uh, the big urban, you know, industrializing uh, conurbations. So here you've got the army being used very much against itself. And there are a number of sort of themes there that, that kind of appealed to me. Um, and also uh, one of the army officers, a Lieutenant Bennett, is killed. He's shot dead by the rebel leader at the beginning of this skirmish. Uh, and he's the first, his father wrote a, a letter uh, to the war office pointing out rather mournfully, he's the first British officer to die in the new Queen's reign. And that struck me as being a kind of interesting and, and significant moment to pick up with as well. So it kind of launched off the, the story. Um, and uh, as you know, you've read the book. Uh, I kind of wanted to include some storytelling in it. I didn't want it to be very much a, just an analytical study. Uh, so I wanted to, to pick up various incidents throughout the period and kind of focus on them and see what they say about the, the broader themes that are going on. Uh, and I just thought the Battle of Bosendon Wood is a weird, funny, strange little story to begin with, really. And I think one thing that's, that I found particularly interesting is the development of the British Army across this period, you know, from your sort of 1838s all the way through to the end of your book. Before we get into how it changed, can you give us a sense of what of what the British Army was like at the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign and whether it had even changed since the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 or whether it was kind of stuck in this stasis, perhaps? And perhaps, you know, maybe you can elaborate if you think that was any particular individual's fault, not naming names, Wellington. <laughs> oh, I wonder who you've got in mind there. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I mean, in many ways, it was stagnant at the, at the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign. Um, it, it was still uh, a very sort of hidebound institution. There was a huge gulf between the officer class um, who were drawn very much from the principally actually from the sort of minor landed gentry. Um, it's slightly a myth that there were a lot of aristocrats in the British army at this period. There certainly were some. Some of them, like Lord Cardigan, for example, were quite eccentric and, and, and left their mark. Um, but generally, it was the sort of lower gentry who provided the officers and then the rural or urban poor who provided the other ranks. Uh, that was pretty much as it had been in Napoleonic times. Um, and there wasn't much of a, a bridge between the two. Um, they lived a, a, an oddly separate sort of life. For the ordinary soldier, it was very much um, a, a life of harsh routine. Uh, of constant drill, of fairly harsh authority, uh, and you were almost trained to be unimaginative and to obey repetitive 
sort of manoeuvres uh, without question at the time. That hadn't changed since the Napoleonic Wars at all. Battlefield tactics hadn't changed since the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and yes, the figure that towers over the, the reason behind that is the Duke of Wellington, uh, who, of course, had won Waterloo in 1815, but then gone on to be hugely influential in British society and British government subsequently. Uh, his career doesn't stop with his victory at, uh, at Waterloo. Um, he, he becomes uh, he's in charge of the he's minister of war. Uh, he's prime minister at one stage and very much through um, to his death. Um, he dominates the British military scene and the military establishment. And of course, a lot of the field commanders um, during the early Victorian period are officers who had served under the Duke of Wellington in the peninsula or at Waterloo. Um, younger men then, but they're very much part of his kind of mindset. They, they've learned all their attitudes and their approaches to soldiering from the Duke of Wellington. Uh, that thing when people say now, oh, what would so-and-so say? You know, we get it as a meme in, in modern society. But what would the Duke of Wellington say? Very much kind of dominated military thought uh, through to the eve of the, um, the Crimean War. Uh, and um, only with his death and a lot of the things that happen at the end of my period uh, do you begin to get sort of significant changes. Now, there are changes in things like weapon technology, which begin to affect battlefield tactics. There are changes in discipline. The Duke of Wellington believed that a soldier would only do his duty if he was flogged to it. Uh, and there was a, a huge range of, of kind of fairly harsh punishments that does begin to ease across this period. So there are there's a sort of undercurrent of change bubbling against this dominating presence of the, the Duke of Wellington and his legacy across the period. And then obviously, so he dies, we have the Crimean War, which is also covered in your book. Are these the main catalysts for change? Or do you see a specific moment or specific incidents that make the top brass go, we need to change? Or is it from the bottom up? What, what did you what do you feel? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's very interesting because in lots of ways, of course, the, the popular view is that the Crimea is the catalyst for change. Um, the British Army went into it as a recognisably Napoleonic institution still wearing the same sort of bright uniforms, still adopting broadly the same sort of battlefield tactics. Uh, but of course, it comes at a point when weapon technology has changed. You've then got rifled muskets. So the capacity for longer range destruction on the battlefield is much greater at that point. Um, but really, in a way, what changes with the Crimea is not so much that it's a, the shortcomings of the war itself which are not hugely different from, from earlier Napoleonic Wars. Um, but the fact that media coverage is much greater. Uh, so you've, you've got sort of almost embedded journalists like William Howard Russell, who are reporting on what's going on. Uh, and there's a, a, a sort of growth in literacy uh, or growth in influence from the literate middle class. Uh, the arrival from the 1840s of illustrated papers, which are presenting these wars in new ways. And, and the British public just becomes more aware of what's going on in the Crimea. And that, of course, is really the, the catalyst for change. Plus, it's true to say that there is a, a, a the senior officers at that point are pretty long in the tooth. Lord Raglan, um, who'd lost an arm at Waterloo, 
so, you know, real disciples of the Duke of Wellington. And they're just kind of getting on a bit and maybe not quite up to speed with the, the changes uh, that are happening. But one of the arguments that I wanted to make in the book, actually, is that although, yes, the Crimea is, is one of is the great kind of uh, focus for all of this change, actually, there have been other in some ways, at least equally significant changes bubbling along in the background. Um, and obviously throughout the book, I look at a number of early colonial campaigns that the British army was interested in. Now, people have an image when you look at the late Victorian era um, of the Victorian army as coming sort of fully formed as being uh, adept, equipped and experienced at colonial wars. Well, it kind of wasn't really. I mean, the, the last major um, campaigns that the the, Napole the British army had fought were in Europe against Napoleon. So it was a conventional war fought against a, a, a similar sort of army. Uh, and it's only really in the aftermath of Waterloo when the British Empire, which is a fact, certainly, you know, we've, we've already controlled quite a chunk of India by this point. Um, but with freed from the rivalry around the world uh, of the French against the French, the British army starts to expand in other all sorts of other areas. And that thrusts it into a whole different type of wars, uh, which is why I picked out things like the um, New Zealand wars between the British and the Maori in New Zealand, uh, the early Eastern Cape Frontier Wars in Southern Africa. Uh, generally, these wars are, are remembered in their own countries, but are largely forgotten here in the UK. Um, and yet, to my mind, these are the campaigns when the British, rather falteringly, often enough, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, are learning the craft of kind of colonial warfare, which they they sort of have got the knack of by the time you get to the 1870s and the 1880s, when you get these much bigger wars around the world, which are, you know, more more kind of remembered today. Um, but the, the smaller ones and the difficulties of just getting somewhere in the world to fight, finding when you get there that the terrain is very different from anything you've experienced before, working out how you're going to move yourself across that, and then fighting enemies who are who are very effective on their own turf in their own terms, um, but are very different from anything that you've fought before. And I just thought that was quite an interesting and often overlooked aspect of, of the experience at this period, which I wanted to kind of bring a bit more to the foreground, really. So, Ian, you do talk about the Maori Wars quite a bit in, in this book. What, did, what was it you found so interesting and important about these wars? Because they're not ones I know anything about, and probably many of the listeners don't either. No, indeed. I mean, there was quite a long series of campaigns, um, essentially, to conquer uh, New Zealand on behalf of, of white settlers, British settlers in New Zealand, uh, which, of course, meant um, essentially taking land from the indigenous Maori people. Uh, now, that's well remembered in New Zealand today, but it's certainly something that's fallen through the gaps of, of kind of popular uh, memory of British military experience over here in the UK. Not many people have, have heard about these wars. Uh, and a number of things that struck me uh, were quite interesting about this. Um, one is the fact that this is, you know, one of the early tests of the fact that you've got an expanding empire and you've now got to literally send troops to enforce your will right the way around to the other end of the world. Um, and that then throws a lot of responsibility on individual local commanders. Um, I have a look at, uh, at one of the local commanders uh, and his trials and tribulations in the one of the campaigns in the 1840s there. 
Um, so it was sort of interesting as a as a uh, the reach of empire in itself. But again, uh, fighting against a people um, who have a very different military outlook to, to British regular troops, but who nonetheless had adopted even by this stage a, a number of European um, sort of uh, military aspects. Um, the Maori at the beginning of the 19th century had adopted Western firearms, uh, which had become very much part of their, their kind of military techniques. So the British are now facing a, a very different people who look very different to them, uh, whose cultural attitudes are very different to them, but are, who are nonetheless using, you know, Western firearms uh, and who develop quite quickly various techniques for dealing with what the British suppose are their great assets or, or, of sort of firepower, artillery um, and, uh, and musketry. Uh, and the Maori are not phased by this in the slightest. Um, they had a traditional defensive technique called the PAR, uh, which is a, a, a fortified sort of entrenched position. Um, and they merely adapted that very quickly to the fact that the enemy have now got sort of artillery uh, uh, as well. And the British, and this was the thing that, that intrigued me in a way, is watching the British struggle to come to terms with these challenges as they unfold. Uh, they go into it thinking, OK, conventional techniques, bombardment and then frontal attack. Maori figure that one out quite quickly. Well, we'll dig bomb-proof shelters inside our defensive positions and we'll let them shell us. Uh, and then we'll shoot them down when they come and try and rush our, our palisades. Uh, and it's sort of just interesting as a culture clash and a military clash. Uh, and it struck me as being indicative of the sorts of challenge that the British as they're expanding their empire at this period, are facing around the world. You know, these are new challenges against different people, very, very different from the sort of experience that, that um, officers, for example, had had in the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. Uh, and they point the way to the way, as I say, that, that this kind of colonial expertise slowly develops over the, the 19th century. Um, similar sort of thing on the Eastern Cape frontier, all the wars against the Borza people there, which, again, are largely forgotten in the UK today. Um, even here, to be honest, Ian, even in South Africa, it, even a lot of Hossa people, if I mention the frontier wars to them, they've not heard of them. And yet they'll have heard of the Zulu wars. So I think they're definitely conflicts which are... Uh, which deserve more study. And, you know, luckily we've got gents like yourself filling some of those gaps and, and hopefully we can raise raise awareness of some of these conflicts. I think they are important for, for both the British and the Hossa or the Maori, whoever it might be. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, certainly I'm a bit shocked to hear that the Borza are not more aware of their, because they had a very long tradition of, of, you know, in that sense, noble resistance against uh, advancing colonialism over the best part of 100 years, initially against the Dutch and then against the, the British. Um, and again, you know, the, very different from conventional warfare as far as the, the, the British are concerned. Uh, so now they've got to to adapt to, to um, waging wars of containment in the bush against the people who use mountain strongholds, who move very easily through very difficult terrain that the uh, the British couldn't move through, who attack supply columns, who who learn how to ambush British troops when they're at their most vulnerable. Uh, so it's intriguing just to see that uh, that level of defiance in a sense. Um, you know, the Gaza are not overawed by a Western army carrying firearms and artillery. They learn to adapt against it in, in different ways to the Maori, but in the same sort of sense of, of coming to rise to the occasion. Uh, and then, of course, from the British perspective, um, you know, the British have then got, oh, it's another 
different enemy fighting in a different way that we've somehow got to learn to, to come to terms with. Um, and one of the things, and it's in a sense, it's just a little point, but it's sort of emblematic of the whole process that I'm looking at in the book. Uh, on the Cape Frontier there, um, one of the Highland regiments, the 74th Highlanders, uh, adopts uh, a sort of proto-khaki uniform for fighting in the bush. Their colonel uh, adopts, um, I think they were actually uh, sort of loose smocks that were issued for life on board ship on the way out to, to Southern Africa. Uh, and he had them dyed with local dyes. So you've got this very sort of practical, loose, khaki coloured coat uh, that instead of the scarlet that everybody else is still wearing, um, his men are then using in the bush. Uh, and it seems to me, well, there's the cutting edge of that that sort of process that's going on over the whole period, uh, which is why, in a way, that we we sort of stressed the last redcoats because you're moving out of a whole type of warfare and into something new around the world, and that's symbolised by the moving away from the the old scarlet coats of the Napoleonic era uh, and into something different, which which doesn't end strictly when I stop the book. It kind of splutters on, even in the Anglo-Zulu War in 1879. Obviously, the British are still wearing scarlet, but but there already was a, you know, that's bucking the trend. The trend by that stage is to move away into more practical field uniforms. So it just struck me that there was a turning point. There was a, you know, one of those um, tipping points when you're changing from the old ways to the to the new ways. Uh, and that's kind of, yeah, what, what I was looking at with, throughout the book, really. And Ian, from your research, within the British Army of this period, were, were there changes to the tactical doctrine? Were, you know, is this that sort of spread of knowledge institution-wide within the British Army about fighting different types of enemy? Or do you feel they were having to reinvent the wheel every time and this information wasn't being disseminated to the right people about how to operate in different environments against different enemies? Yeah, I think there is an element of, of inventing the wheel every time, you know, um, and in some ways, uh, there's another aspect of the, the Crimean War in that the British army and the British military establishment, governments, probably even Queen Victoria, um, regarded the real threat to Britain as coming from Europe across this period. Uh, and so, of course, the idea was that the British should be up to speed at fighting a European war, which which essentially the Crimean War was. Um, but in fact, sort of between the end of the Napoleonic War and, and the 1850s, when the Crimean War happens, there isn't another major war in Europe, and there isn't another one after the Crimea until 1914. So although that was seen as being the most significant aspect of Victorian military experience, in real terms, it isn't. You know, the, in practical terms, it is this imperial uh, experience around the world where the British are having to learn all these do, new sort of techniques. Um, and the Crimea, unfortunately, in a sense, sort of sets things back because there's a feeling of, aha, you know, this is this is the sort of war that we're up to fighting. That's great. Let's let's study how the war was carried out in a European sort of sense and concept and all the rest of it. And once again, this growing body of colonial experience is sort of pushed into the background. Um, in, in India, shortly afterwards, obviously, you've got this major conflict uh, where um, there is a challenge to the East India Company rule, the Indian mutiny, 
first war of Indian independence, however you want to style it these days, uh, which again is, a, I mean, it's interesting in some ways from a sort of strategic and tactical point of view, because it straddles both worlds. Um, on one hand, it's very clearly a colonial campaign, but on the other hand, you're fighting against Indian troops who had been trained in British techniques. And a lot of it is fairly sort of conventional warfare. So there, there's definitely a, a kind of angst running through the British army at this period as to <clears throat> what our direction should be and what should we learn from these colonial campaigns. And there was a feeling that the colonial campaigns were, were small wars, in inverted commas, and therefore really not that significant. Um, and yet my argument is actually, no, that's, you know, that's where the British are going around the world at this point, And they were hugely significant. So that's one reason why I wanted to try and draw a bit of focus back onto the wars in New Zealand uh, and the wars in Southern Africa at that time. Some of the early conflicts against the Boers in Southern Africa take place at this period as well, largely forgotten now. Um, like Boonplatz and those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. Siege of Port Natal, uh, which again just struck me as being a, a, a strange and interesting story. Uh, the British troops march up overland from, from the Cape Colony uh, and occupy um, what's now the city of Durban, but it was then just a, a, a sort of lagoon uh, Port Natal with a with a small European settlement. Uh, and the Boers who had previously tried to escape British rule tried to drive them out. And you get this odd little war fought hundreds of miles in the middle of Africa, you know, with no connection to any other sort of European involvement whatsoever. Um, and again, it's part of a, a body of conflict in Southern Africa. You'll know, Chris, you know, the 19th century is pretty brutal um, uh, across all peoples in Southern Africa. Uh, and, it, and it's kind of happening for the British at this point, you know, and it's leading up in a sense, <laughs> it's paving the way for the great conflict in, in 1899 to 1902 with the Boers. Uh, but that didn't come out of nowhere. There had been a, a, a history of antagonism, which, which again starts in this period. Uh, and I just thought, wow, you know, to uh, Major Smith, um, of what the 27th Regiment, I think being sent up to Port Natal, just go and march. Two or three hundred miles through, you know, African territory occupied by indigenous, independent African peoples, occupy a spot on the map, put up the flag and claim it for Britain and brush aside any, you know, these emigrant farmers, as the British regarded them, the Boers, uh, just brush them aside to, to, to do this. And you think, God, the <laughs> just the extraordinary challenge that was posed by that sort of order and those directions deserves to be remembered. And, and you're right in saying, you know, I, I did want consciously to, to try and bring some of these forgotten stories to the fore, because they ought to be remembered today. Um, they're, they're quite extraordinary in terms of the human experience. And let's not forget about them. Exactly. Yeah, it's a it's a great chapter in your book, actually, because I, I guess you're very lucky that there was soldiers there who could actually read and write and have left as great accounts, isn't it, of that march? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in a sense, that's that's reasonably unusual. Um, one of the things that I did struggle with when writing the book <laughs> is that I wanted to to foreground the experience of ordinary soldiers. Uh, but, you know, the majority of them were still illiterate at this period. Um, and there are fortunately there are there are exceptions to that. You get somebody who will you know write a memoir at the end of their lives and look back on it all. Um, and there are some quite nice sort of Victorian compilations of uh, of ordinary soldiers' experiences. Uh, but quite often their voice, you know, you think, well, I want to know what 
Private Smith or whoever, um, actually probably quite often Private Murphy, because there was a, a very strong Irish um, presence in the British Army at this period uh, as well, which is another factor that I, I kind of wanted to at least acknowledge. Um, but what did they think about it? And often their voice isn't there. But that 1842 chapter, um, yeah, we've got a couple of sort of diaries from ordinary soldiers, officers, reminiscences uh, and whatever. And you can actually put together the whole of that sort of trip up the Pondo land coast and the arrival at Port Natal and, and the hardships that they then endured uh, before they were finally relieved from the, the sea, of course, by a, um, a warship was sent up to, to uh, lift the siege of Port Natal uh, and free them from the attention of the Boers. So it, it's quite a nice little one to be able to look at from different perspectives and to, to, to kind of come out and, and explore from a human point of view. Brilliant. Well, I hope to I hope to make a film on that battle, actually, and get down to Durban, because obviously we can talk about Dick Smith and there's still a statue for him. Yeah. We, we don't need to get into all that now. But what I do find interesting, and you've touched on it a bit throughout the interview and also mentioning the Irish now, is how you see the British Army change throughout the era, both in let's let's sort of step aside from uniforms and weaponry. Mm -hmm. But in terms of demographics, you know, how do you see the British Army changing? It's sort of it's it's hot hotbeds for recruitment it's you know it, it's uh what have i i've made some notes here i put cardwell reforms flogging temperance clubs that sort of thing how do you see the biggest changes in the army over this period yeah there's definitely a shift um i, I mean one reason why i wanted to begin with the bosand and wood story was that you know the uh, up till sort of the immediate pre-victorian period uh the rural uh rural um laborers were the, the main focus for British military recruitment. Uh, but of course, society itself is changing on the eve of the Victorian period um, with industrialization. And you get these new urban conurbations developing Birmingham and Manchester and all those sorts of places. Uh, and there's a big shift in the, the sort of demographic of the of the population. And that, of course, affects where the army recruits from. Um, and as we've touched upon, uh, the army, certainly during the Napoleonic era, had recruited very heavily in Ireland. Uh, and it certainly does throughout the 1830s. Uh, but that begins to drop off in the 1840s with the um, the famines in Ireland, the potato blight and all the rest of it, uh, where you start to get a huge immigration from Ireland actually to America. Uh, and there are less young men in Ireland sort of seeking an escape from, from that society by joining the British Army. Uh, and it begins to drop away throughout the 19th century. Uh, and there's much more emphasis on recruiting in the cities. Um, the recruiting sergeants are, are on record as saying, well, generally, we preferred, it a, preferred a plowboy uh, as a recruit because they were fit and strong, uh, and they took rather better to discipline uh, than the rather undernourished um, I suppose, a bit bolshy, you know, urban um, uh, slum dwellers uh, who they recruited as well. Uh, and so you get that sort of shift is going on in the background. Initially, life is pretty harsh for ordinary soldiers. It hasn't changed much from Napoleonic times at the beginning of the period. But there is a growing awareness uh, a, a growing interest in the welfare of ordinary soldiers. Uh, and so, as you say, you start to get a a, a, a rise in educational standards. It's quite small at this period, but in the later period, later Victorian period, it does become quite significant. By the time you get to the 1870s, 
a lot more soldiers were literate than they were in the 1830s, for example. Uh, there's a realisation that perhaps keeping your soldiers happy with huge amounts of beer um, at, you know, whatever it was, a hate near court or something, uh, isn't necessarily long-term very good for the welfare of the army. So you start to get um, a temperance movement to encourage people away, soldiers away from just drinking uh, their pay at the end of the, the month. Uh, and it, all of these sort of slowly start to shift towards a better educated, um, a, a better treated um, a, a sort of ordinary soldier uh, in the period there. Uh, and the shift, as I say, away from, from Ireland towards um, ordinary kind of urban poor uh, as the principal recruiting era. So it's not always obvious, but it's it's definitely... It's definitely going on in the background. And it kind of culminates, you mentioned the Cardwell report reforms, which really sort of get into gear in the 1870s. Uh, so I sort of stop the book on the cusp of that with a nod to the fact that that's where we're going. Um, altering the way that, that soldiers were recruited, the period that they were recruited for, uh, there was an emphasis on a, on a new sort of short system rather than effectively signing up for life uh, you could sign up for a period and then kind of go on to the reserve afterwards which was thought to make it more attractive to a better class of recruit was the phrase that was used at the time so there are sort of changes brewing and kind of coming to a head at the end of the period here which make it quite a different uh, institution to the one that the duke of wellington had had presided over and uh, won the battle of waterloo with and what about officers? Do we see a growing professionalism? Obviously, throughout the course of your book, we start to see the purchase system phased out and so forth. Do, do you notice a real sort of change in the sort of everyday professionalism of officers? Yes, I think you do. I mean, I, I think, that, that again, there's a lot of angst over it across this period. Um, as you say, you touch upon purchase to, to modern eyes i think the idea that an officer would purchase um his commission seems really odd uh, but in fact again the duke of wellington was a big advocate of it and and there were a number of reasons for that one of which was you know the social class therefore that your officers come from um if they're coming from the gentry they're going to be better educated the chances are they're used to exercising authority uh, in their civilian lives, if you're a landowner, you've got workers working under you, you're probably going to be better educated. So there was a feeling that, well, you know, if you can pay, you're the sort of person we want as an officer. But also the Duke of Wellington was quite clear that he felt it gave them a stake in their profession, because if you've put money up, you've got to take the job seriously. Now, it's interesting because really... For a long time, the British Army was a bit uncomfortable about uh, about their officers being too professional and knowing their job too well. It sort of keys into a gentlemanly idea that, well, you know, uh, pluck, courage, doing your best are the things that you really need to get through. There's a wonderful line in the 1968 movie, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Um, and unfortunately, I did look for it. There may be some Lord Raglan uh, scholars out there who, who know whether it's true or not. I couldn't find it, so I didn't use it as a real quote. But it's a great line in the movie. They may have just made it up. Uh, and he says, well, uh, heaven help us. 
uh, when the British officer knows too well what he is doing, it smacks of murder. Uh, and it does kind of reflect an idea that, oh, yeah, we're a bit uncomfortable about the reality of our profession if we if we do it too well. But that is beginning to change. Um, it, it's kind of clear during the Crimean period that that actually people do think, look at the some of the more shambolic aspects of, of this campaign unfolding around us. We really ought to have uh, a more integrated approach to to um, staff issues. We need, you know, higher training for officers uh, and all the rest of it. And that's kind of bubbling along throughout the period and then comes out in some of the discussions about the Crimea. And again, at the end of the period, you're getting a shift where you've, you've um, you've got sort of a, a much greater emphasis on young, ambitious officers who want to go somewhere, need to know their job. They need to know what they're doing. Uh, and so you get a kind of wave of younger officers coming through uh, who have taken their profession much more seriously. And that's very different from the sort of attitude that, well, you know, uh, just walk in front of your men and don't duck, that kind of thing, which was in the background at the beginning of the of the period. Brilliant. And and before we wrap up, Ian, what from the course of your research and writing the book, is, is there anything that's particularly surprised you that you weren't expecting or any elements that you found particularly interesting? Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me, actually, is um, it, it's very easy to look from the outside at the Victorian army and see these huge social gulfs between the officers uh, and the other ranks uh, and the fact that the ordinary soldiers, you know, they live in their barracks, the officers have their quarters that they live in, um, officers eat in their mess amongst other officers. In peacetime, it's really only a small number of officers who, who have anything to do with their men, the officer of the day, the adjutant and all the rest of it. Uh, and you can extrapolate from that that this huge gulf means that there was no sympathy between the two. Now, there are a lot of occasions when you've got fairly unsympathetic colonels in charge of regiments. Um, you get sort of aberrations like uh, the Duke of Cardigan, um, Earl Cardigan, uh, who, who was, you know, uh, who was famously aristocratic and high handed and haughty with the management of the men under his command. But actually, they turn out to be exceptions rather than the rules. And I think one of the things that comes across throughout the period uh, is that there is a sort of bargain between the officers and the other ranks. Uh, and the, the other ranks will follow their officers to hell and back, providing the officers do the right thing and kind of look after them, display the same sort of sense of, of courage in battle. But have also, and it's a very paternalistic kind of care, Obviously, that reflects the, the sort of social assumptions behind all of that. Um, but a lot of those officers do, in the manner of the day, have an affection for the men under them. They regard them as being totally different human beings to themselves, but they feel it's part of the job often to look after them uh, and to lead them well in battle. And as a result, you know, many of the men then are, feel a, a genuine bond with their officers. Uh, and I think that you can very easily get misled by the superficial realities. And it, and it came as a surprise to me a little bit to think, do you know what, there, there is, uh, there are these unifying factors there. Um, and of course, within the regimental system, um, there are deliberate sort of tools to bring that about when you join the regiment. 
you were taught the history of the, you become aware of the history of the regiment. You have the colours which are unique to your regiment. You know, there's a, a conscious bonding of officers and men within the within the same unit. Um, and that that's a hugely powerful thing. And uh, yeah, I, I think I was nonetheless still sort of quite surprised to find um, how, how, not close exactly, but how real uh, the connection between officers and men was across the period. Uh, and some of the, the exceptions to that really sort of belie the, the, the general experience overall. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, being in the Victorian army, particularly for ordinary soldiers, wasn't an easy thing. It was harsh and repetitive and dull uh, and all the rest of it. But but nonetheless, their, um, their commitment to it uh, was often very real. Although, having said that, I do have a little look now and then against deserters, which is another kind of interesting experience throughout the book. But yeah, no, it, it was an interesting thing to to submerge myself more in the, the kind of um, social realities of the life. Uh, and it was quite revealing to me, uh, even having written about the Victorian army and obviously about the Anglo-Zulu war ad nauseum before, um, it, this was a bit different. Brilliant. And if anyone wants to get hold of your book, Ian, what's the, what, what, what ways do you recommend to get hold of it? Yeah, we have it right here. Ta-da! It's, yes, it's called Warriors in Scarlet. It's published by Macmillan's. Um, actually, it's it, sort of all good bookstop, bookshops. Um, in the UK, Waterston stock it, which is very nice for me. A lot of my stuff is, the realities are a lot of my stuff is fairly niche and doesn't quite fit into mainstream um, booksellers these days uh but uh dare i say amazon uh have got it um certainly mainstream booksellers have got it and hopefully specialist ones as well you can get it online uh i have a a specialist um website that sells my books uh ian knight zulu war gallery if you google that you'll find it you can get it get a signed copy from me there um but yeah hopefully uh unlike some of my more obscure stuff it should be reasonably easy to get hold of Brilliant. And what just finally, what's next for you, Ian? I know you've probably not had time to breathe since publishing this. And then with the uh, with the recent exhibition at the Royal Philatelic Society. What 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 are you planning on doing next? What's, what's yeah, next for it, Ian Knight? Yeah, absolutely. It has been a fairly hectic kind of summer, I have to say, really. Um, but I've got a uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with my Osprey books, which uh, those little sort of slim guides to things yes. with paperback, you know, paperback things with lots of pictures and lots of artwork. Uh, I and think I've got, got a few. I've got a few here. Is this is this one of yours? Uh, it uh, is. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Uh, it is one of mine. Well done. It's one of mine as well, which is even better. But uh, I've got one of those, which I've got to kind of pull together fairly quickly. Um, uh, yes, it's going to be interesting because uh, it's on the Battle of Blood River. Um, so yeah, back to Southern Africa for that one, and into fairly i'm slightly nervous blood river is fairly controversial territory um yeah. but obviously those books look at things in a very stripped down military kind of way it's not my intention to get into any controversial elements but actually just to to look at the mechanics of uh, uh, of that battle and one or two of the other battles um the battle of the Tugela in 1838 which is part of the same war i'm going to be having a look at as well uh, so that's my next project which is going to take me sort of into the winter over here and then i'm not quite sure after that um i've got one or two sort of dormant things that I signed up for years ago and haven't really gone anywhere with. So it might be a case of, of fishing those out and seeing whether the publisher's still interested in those. Uh, but yeah, we'll kind of see what it brings, really. 
Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to Ian Knight. He really is the historian's historian. I wish I could write half as well as him, and I wish I had one-tenth of his knowledge. Well, maybe one day. Coming up in the next few weeks, I'm speaking to Kevin Brazier about the Victoria Cross. And, of course, we've got more on my history of the Indian Mutiny. You don't want to miss that. All right. Take care. We will march again soon.